who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It was weird. When I got to college, immediately I fell in with like the gayest group on campus of just like, I was one of only two people who identified as straight in that group. And I was just like, isn't it crazy how I just get along so well with gay people, even though I'm straight? (laughs) (laughs) I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together. See what it's all Hi, and welcome to Diking Out, a podcast that doubles as a vaccine against the patriarchy. I'm Carolyn Bergier. And I'm Melody Kamali. And today we are diking out with cartoonist and the creator of Netflix's She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, Noelle Stevenson. That interview was pre-recorded, so we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But first, what's going on, Melody? How's it going? Hey, I'm just, I'm just hanging out and, you know sweating. It's our first really hot day here in New York. Yeah, I was just at Prospect Park. Absolutely no one in masks. That was very cool to see. Oh no. Um, yeah, I went around just taking pictures of people. I don't know who I plan on sending it to, like if it's for Sean King or something. But <laughs> <laughs> just going up to groups of like what a snitch. Shirtless white men and <laughs> snapping pics and <laughs> Now I've got all that on my phone, but otherwise, pretty good. Yeah, today was the first day that I realized that my natural deodorant is in fact just a deodorant and not an antiperspirant. At least it works on something. On one thing, yeah. <laughs> one yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, I've never had it work for anything when I've tried natural deodorant in the past. Yeah, no, my armpits smell lovely. They're just very moist, very moist. Mm. I've been sweating nonstop from the backs of my knees. Like, that's new. Mm. Is that something that happens when you enter 30? Is that just a furry Persian thing? Like, what is that? <laughs> it's dripping from the backs of my knees. I feel 
feel like I get back of the knee sweat. I also get like a lot of butt sweat. Mm, yeah. But I think that started in my 20s. Uh, something else that I also have antibodies. What, what? <laughs> bow, bow, bow. She has antibodies, and that means what? You're tested negative for COVID and positive for antibodies. For antibodies, which actually probably means nothing at all. We have no idea what it means because Cecilia yeah. tested negative. And she was around me. We were smooching. Uh, by the way, I'm gay. We were smooching the entire <laughs> time during the quarantine, even when I was sick. And she never had any symptoms and felt fine the whole time. We thought she gave it to me. I was pretty sure she'd have antibodies. But the tests I'm hearing are 30 to 40% inaccurate. That's more than I probably would even expect <laughs> at this point. Yeah, it's a pretty big scam, I think. And I almost feel like maybe they just took our blood. And when they asked us if we had symptoms or not, they just like wrote positive next to mine and negative next to hers or something. <laughs> have fun with it. And just put it up. But yeah, we don't know like if that means I can still get it. If she can still get it, can we pass it on to other people? Who knows? So we're staying inside for the foreseeable future. More of the same. Yeah, more of the same. More, oh, lots of cooking inside of our apartment. That takes a lot of time. So actually, I called up a past guest, Alex Kunis of Babetown, and she's been doing a awesome meal delivery service during quarantine for people in the New York area. And I think twice a week, she's making deliveries of meals and she has all different options. If you're vegan or gluten-free, whatever, she has it. Yeah, she's been feeding us for the past few weeks and it's been great. So I just want to give a shout out to her for keeping things going and finding like a creative way to keep doing what she does. And her thing is feeding queers. If you don't remember who Alex Kunis is, it was our Dyke Spaces episode of the podcast. Nice. I have the menu pulled up and it looks delish. It is. It's really delicious. And when Cecilia was eating, she's like, it really feels like it was made with, with love. <laughs> it's just like good home cooking, but like delivered to your door. It was made with love is love is love is love. Yes. <laughs> that should be the tagline. That's yeah. great. I'll let her know. What else is up? You know, the continuation of things being canceled and postponed indefinitely. And one of the ones that I'm kind of bummed about is that I had great tickets to go see Alanis Morissette with Garbage and Liz Fair this summer, which no is freaking way. a teenage dream for me and, uh, and a current dream because I listened to the same music I listened to as a teenager. I don't know how I missed that. I can't believe you missed it. Well, now you might be able to get tickets on the sellback market or whatever because <laughs> they didn't cancel it. They postponed it. And Ticketmaster is doing this with a lot of their concerts. So you can't get a refund. And if you're not available for the new date of it, then you're just kind of screwed and have to maybe sell the tickets. But that's hard to do right now for events that are like a year out or whatever. And I, I spent a pretty penny on them. And yeah. I feel like my money's just been held hostage. And I'm seeing on Twitter too, a lot of other people are dealing with the same thing that they paid for something. They can't go to the date that it was rescheduled to. And then their economic situation has changed. So now they would like that money back 
and it's yeah. just in the slimy bank account of Ticketmaster, who I've hated for a long time, and I don't know why people deal with them. I don't know how you get tickets to big concerts like that. Like when Bikini Kill went on that reunion tour, yeah, and there were like insane. two dates. I tried. That's the first time I've tried in years. I'm like, this is the one big concert I try to get tickets to. I'm, uh, how do you get it? They sell out immediately, and the scalpers within five minutes right. are on the resale sites for you know ten times the price. I don't understand how to obtain <laughs> coveted tickets. They need a better system, especially for like bikini kills. You should have like proof that you've eaten pussy to get to I the know. front of the line. Like they shouldn't be letting people who are clearly scalpers and posers. Yeah, that that was upsetting. Uh, I, I'm mourning it all over again. I wanted to oh, go to that so sorry bad. To tear open those wounds <laughs> for you. He's okay. Yeah. Other than that, it's just more more quarantine. What are you watching? How are you coping? I think at this point, it's impressive. I have not made a meal. Like everyone's (laughs) cooking. I don't know how. I used to be able to take care of myself. I'm very codependent in relationships and have just been, uh, I guess, lucky enough to date people who cook well and enjoy cooking. Yeah. And it's very much my girlfriend's love language to make me food and like not just make it, but like plate it well and just like bring it to me. Like she loves, she's like an Enneagram, what is it, too? What? It's like a personality test. Instead of the Myers-Briggs, it's on a numerical scale. Most comedians are fours, very, you know, need validation. And so I'd be interested to see if you're a four like me. You know, I took this dark personality test and it's about like all the darkest human traits you have. And (laughs) I was surprised that I came out much lower than I would have thought. And I was answering the questions. I'm like, oh, no, this is horrifying. Who would would (laughs) say this? And I also had a hunch that Cecilia would have a higher dark personality than me, which most people wouldn't think because my humor is very dark and Cecilia is like the most delightful person you've ever met. And yeah. I was right. So sweet. She was, she was way darker than me. But I've seen her art. And yes, trauma the, will do that. <laughs> the listeners do see the really happy art usually for the cover art on the episodes but uh, the things in progress in your apartment I usually see on a canvas are dark <laughs> yeah yeah it's a lot of like knives going into eyeballs and stuff yeah. <laughs> but yeah still on my you know streak of not making food pretty impressive um, been eating and watching TV what? I do want to interrupt and say that so I've been I've been baking which is something that I haven't done too much until maybe like this past year, but now I'm like regularly baking in quarantine. And I made these gluten-free carrot cake scones with um, an orange glaze and they were to die for. And Cecilia has never been so impressed with me. I think it's like, it doesn't matter how many times she's seen me like perform on stage or like do great in front of a big crowd. Like these scones, she like cannot believe she's married to me. It's great. And it sucks. I wish I could share them with people. I mean, I guess I could share the recipe. Just Google it. There aren't that many. Yeah. Why don't you send that recipe to Allie? Thank you so much. Yes, I will. I will. So anyway, you're eating, you're watching, you're coping. Yeah. Right now I'm watching 
the last dance. I can't get enough of it. I don't expect you to know what that means. I know. I'm like, <laughs> is Julia Stiles involved in any way? <laughs> but there are celebrities, jam-packed with celebrities. It's Michael Jordan's docuseries. It's about Michael Jordan and his time with the Chicago Bulls. I've heard of he really, Let's see. Oh, you, you would actually enjoy one part of it because there's an episode where they go into Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman, and you do see some footage of Dennis Rodman like walking out of a party with Madonna. With Madonna. I knew you were going <laughs> to say that. Yeah, she's a big part of his basketball origin story. Like, he apparently was kind of, like, didn't really come into his own when he was playing for the Detroit Pistons. He eventually got big, started playing for the Bulls, and he says um, that it was really Madonna who helped him recognize that he's a star and special and he should really, like, you know, max out to his potential. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Good on Madonna. She's being real weird in quarantine, producing some really questionable, out-of-touch... Bathtub videos. Yeah, yeah. Calling coronavirus <laughs> the the great equalizer because she's yeah. old and scared, I think. <sighs> but it's not. It's still, like everything, crushing the most vulnerable populations. <laughs> Speaking of crushing, Michael Jordan. <laughs> crushing the game. Is there anything more than him just being like a great basketball player? Was there? <laughs> you get episodes. It, it's like you watch and you're like, wow, he is the best. And then they come out with an episode where it's like, actually, he's a monster and this is how he screwed people over. You just see how competitive he is, how he interacted with his teammates. There's an episode where you get into how he started making a lot of money off his shoe lines mm -hmm. and kind of selling out. There was that infamous quote from him where he didn't speak out against injustice from the Republican side and said something like Republicans buy shoes too, like wasn't vocal. So some might say he's the Ellen DeGeneres of basketball players. <laughs> some pink haired diking out co-host would say that would just jump at an opportunity to bring up Ellen. Our meme did very well. Yes, that meme we put out Two me one I wouldn't even consider a meme, but we are trying, and it seems so obvious now. But I'm like, we should be making memes about diking out, and not just trying to make like general lesbian memes. Yeah, but then they're all going to be about me trying to work Ellen into conversation, <laughs> or about Jenny Schechter. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so you're watching Michael Jordan. I also know that you've been watching. I think you've talked about this a little bit. Lesbians on Instagram Live oh, that you're watching. Yes. Speaking of basketball players, let's talk about the ones I care about, the gay Susans of basketball players. Oh, I got a gay Susan for you. Sue Bird. I've probably talked about her a lot in my short tenure <laughs> as co-host already, but I... Never enough for diking out. I'm obsessed. I love Sue Bird. I was obsessed with the Yukon 1999 women's basketball team. My dad and uncle's best friend played on the men's team in the 80s, so he had season passes, and we used to always go there, great seats. And at the time, it was just such a great team. You had Sue Bird, Shea Ralph, Diana Taurasi, just... The UConn men's and women's team won the NCAA March Madness that year. It was just, I don't know. And that's when I started realizing, I think, that I had feelings for ladies. I had a massive crush on, like, half the team, but especially Sue Bird. Yeah. And so I have my former childhood crush, who is now dating my adulthood 
crush, which is Megan Rapinoe, every America's crush, you know, and they have a Instagram live show. I think proceeds from it. They sell like merch. It's called a touch more. They have um, merch. They have merch. They're not the only one that has merch. There's another Instagram live show that has merch. Oh, really? Already. <laughs> Tegan and Sarah just started one, which I missed the first one, but I'm going to I'm going to tune in next time because I, I love their banter and it's called Where Does the Good Grow? a pun of oh. one of their songs and they already have like shirts for it. And I'm like, wow, you guys are, are fast. It took us forever to get our minder heterosexual business shirt. <laughs> you know, worth it. Up on Etsy, guys. Plug, plug, plug. Okay. We're on Etsy now because it's gayer. Um, it is. <laughs> it's the queerest way to shop. But I, Sue Bird and Megan Rapino are doing a touch more. Apparently the name came from them being in quarantine and just kind of being lazy with their workouts. They're on hold as athletes. So they're putting on some pounds. And I think Sue Bird was kind of examining herself, maybe shirtless or something, and was like, hey, have I put on some weight? And Rapino replies, a touch more. And so that's the name of their show. Oh. <laughs> and they have a bicker of the week where they get into just some really trivial couples fight. They have banter. Well, that's relatable. Yes. <laughs> and then they bring on a guest. And I'm found out someone's been putting them on YouTube. So if you really are interested in this, you can go and find specifically the Diana Taurasi episode. Normally, because Instagram live shows expire after an hour. So typically they start out just assuming they're going to do an hour long show. But if they're having fun, they'll be like, oh, we're going to restart. So join us. We're just starting a new one. And they kept renewing Diana Taurasi's. She was outside drinking wine and by the time it ended it was like four hours long and she's just like out in the dark and you can't really see her and they were just like reminiscing about the UConn team basketball stories from when they're training in Russia their coach Gino Ariema the UConn women's coach fun like couple stories because Diana Taurasi is also married to a WNBA player that's how they this met. sounds like they're just creating a lesbian network like an offshoot of logo <laughs> It's so much fun. And it's going to be on Instagram Live, and it's and then they're going to add in Abby Wambach, yeah, <laughs> and Glennon Doyle. Yes, they're Instagram Live. They're doing a lot. Yeah, Cecilia and I need to get on Instagram Live. We're having great bickers. The other <laughs> night we got into it because I said, "Do you really think it's worth living in New York City just to be home all the time?" And she was like, "I painted two walls in this apartment." And now you're saying you want to move. I'm like, I'm not saying I want to move. I'm just saying like philosophically. To be fair, (laughs) really great looking walls. I saw the pictures and... Wonderful walls. It is. We are doing... You guys are nesting hard. We are. We're nesting. Now that you got an embryo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) The embryo that's like in a freezer and all alone. So we're just trying to really focus on making our apartment as warm and receptive as possible for it. So doing a lot of projects, a lot of DIY stuff. And the D stands for dyke. (laughs) Dyke it yourself. That's our next shirt on Etsy, baby. Yes. (laughs) Oh, well... This interview today, I've been watching a lot of She-Ra in preparation for it. The theme song is in my head. We should give a heads up, though. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I'm relatively new to podcasting, guys. So this is probably my fault. But at some point, I realized 
over halfway into the conversation that I was not being heard. I was asking questions and I first thought I was being ignored. Melody thought we were being two <laughs> they were being, huge bitches and just being like, they were silencing yeah, yeah. the woman of color. I, yeah. <laughs> that no, we are just I, two natural gingers. Yes. Bonding over our love of Shira. It was erasure. It was uh, Kamali erasure. No, I really <laughs> just, my mic wasn't working and I'm really not there until the very end when we realize what happened so yeah just know that I enjoyed the show too and (laughs) loved listening to a great conversation right I wanted Melody to do some research from a listener perspective now at at a certain point I noticed like she wasn't laughing or anything and I'm like Melody are you still with us like did you leave and masturbate and uh weirdly no not this time not this time okay now that we're using Zoom, you can't get away with it. I don't know what you were doing those other remote <laughs> broadcasts. No. Okay. Well, now let's stop talking about that since we're about to talk about a show for all ages. So excited about this conversation. So without further ado, and for the honor of Grayskull. Grayskull. Okay, now it's time to welcome our guest for this episode. Noelle Stevenson is a cartoonist and animation producer who is known for the fantasy comic Nimona and the series Lumberjanes. She is also the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of the animated television series She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which has its fifth and final season out on Netflix right now now. Noelle, thank you so much for diking out with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) We are so excited to have you and we're so excited that this final season of She-Ra is out and I was able to get a sneak peek at it and it's my favorite season yet. Oh, thank you. I'm so proud of this season and and so proud of everyone who worked on it. It's uh it's just it's all of our hearts and all of our our love went into it. Are you feeling very emotional now that it's kind of the final chapter? I've been feeling emotional for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we wrapped production on this like a while back and um you do the last thing for the last time like so many times and then it's right. just like saying goodbye in slow motion. So in a weird way I'm like a little bit relieved to be like not the only one saying goodbye yeah. <laughs> for the first time in a while. So, you know, it's a lot of emotions, but it's also exciting. It just feels, you know, cool to finally be able to have it all out out in the world for everyone to see. Yeah, I'm excited because I only got to watch the first 10 episodes of the final season. So oh I am like oh so... <laughs> yeah, that's all they gave us. Eager. I know. I was like, wait, it. Wh- where are the other three episodes? And I am <laughs> like... Have you got something coming? Yeah, I know. Uh, It's all I've been thinking about since I finished watching. And I have the theme song stuck in my head forever now. But let's let's rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about you and your background and how you kind of got into this whole world of being a, a cartoonist and comics and animation. Yeah. So I started out, uh, I grew up in South Carolina. There's not a huge art scene there, at least not you know, the kind of art I was interested in. So I ended up going to school for illustration. I was interested in book illustrations because I'd always really loved telling stories. And book illustration was really the only like outlet for that that I was aware of at the time of like, oh, I can I can draw, which I'm really good at. And I can tell stories with my drawings, which is something I'm really interested in. And that seemed a little more attainable than being a writer, which was like mm-hmm. my other interest, but I considered it kind of a hobby. 
And so then when I got to school, I ended up kind of by accident, actually, falling into the comics program at my school. And comics, I had not had any awareness of comics up until up until that time. And to, like, suddenly realize that there was this medium where it was equal parts drawing and writing, it was like, you know, this the clouds parted and the sun came through, and I, I <laughs> finally got to, like really just explore like working in a visual medium like this. Yeah. That was when I made Nimona. That was when I started, you know, with my other co-creators working on Lumberjanes and sort of through that again, kind of by accident, there's a lot, there's a lot of accidental things I think in my, (laughs) my road to She-Ra. Awesome accidents. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm very lucky. Uh, I ended up getting a, first I ended up getting an interview to work as a writer on an animated show and they had been fans of my comics. And then I ended up actually getting hired as a staff writer. I was working for, you know, Craig McCracken, who is a legend in animation, on his show Wander Over Yonder at Disney. And mm-hmm. so it was something that I hadn't, I really had not visualized for myself. I was still not really thinking of myself as a writer, but then suddenly I was working as a writer. And I loved it. I really didn't know what my future would be in animation, but the collaborative aspect of it, it like fulfilled this part of me that I think I'd always been looking for, which was like when I get so into a story and so into a world, I just want to share that with everybody. I want them to live in that world with me. And I want to find like new stuff about it. And so being on a crew, it's like, oh, there's the board artist and he's putting all this stuff in his work. And then there's the voice actor and she's adding this to her character. And it's like, there are all these things to discover and and you're working with all these people really closely who like are living in the same fantasy world as you. And I was like hooked. And so that was sort of like, you know, the beginning of my career in animation. I got really lucky, got that kind of break. And then a few years later, I found out that DreamWorks was looking for someone to reboot She-Ra. They had the rights to She-Ra. And they were also fans of my comics work. So I pitched my take on the show and it just felt like really right place, right time. Like they dug my pitch ended up, you know, hiring me to write the Bible and uh, the pilot and start developing the series and the visual look of it. And that was kind of it. Then we were like off to the races. So it's been like a really, just really a whirlwind of a, of a career so far. And uh, my last few years have just been, you know, just very exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a huge opportunity to be asked to be a part of a, a reboot of something like as big as an iconic, I guess, as She-Ra. And did you even watch, I mean, you weren't even born when the original cartoon came out, right? I was not. Not only did I not grow up with She-Ra, I didn't really grow up with a lot of cartoons in general. My family was pretty fundamentalist. Yeah. Um, and so I watched like a lot of like VeggieTales and uh, and a, like an anim- like a Christian anime called Superbook. That was about, like, kids who get sucked into the Bible and, like, meet Jesus and stuff. And, like, so that was, like, a lot of what I was watching. Uh, it wasn't yeah, until like, I was, like, vaguely familiar with that. As really? you described it, I started just having, like, weird flashes of, like, I think I know exactly what this is and had exposure to it that I repressed. <laughs> it's, like, imprinted on my soul. There's, like, like the Lucifer is the snake and he has, like, laser eyes and, like, charges at them and, like. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so scary. It's honestly so scary for a kid. Yeah, it sounds 
terrifying. It was. They did not pull any punches. It's like you know, like the um, like Noah's Ark, which you see like painted on the walls of like the church nursery. It's like, oh, look, all the happy animals. And then Superbook is like, and here's how everyone in the world drowned. We're gonna watch <laughs> it happen. And I was like, ah, this is not the happy animals I signed up for. <laughs> so it was honestly, it was like my sort of like cultural influences were pretty limited when I was a child. Uh, They got a little bit more expansive as I started getting a little older. But yeah, I didn't really like have much association with He-Man and She-Ra at all. Like I was aware of them. I think we had a few of the toys just kind of mixed in with the rest of our like random menagerie of toys that we'd accumulated. I was one of five. So we just end up with like a ton of random toys. Yeah. And I I feel like She-Ra is just one of those characters that everyone knows of her. Whether or not they've seen the show, it's just like you recognize her. You like know what she looks like or like the general idea of who she is. But I, I actually didn't know who She-Ra was until a friend of mine dressed up as She-Ra for Halloween. Wow. And I was like, who are you? And she's like, uh, He-Man's sister. And I'm like, I know. Uh, there's no, like, no I think there's awareness of She-Ra, but like it's it's not as complete as like He-Man Right. It's definitely like, I remember when I first started working on the show and I would like monitor what fandom there was, like the old school fandom. And there was this huge, it was like the bane of the old school fans existence that there was this like very pervasive idea among people who were only casually familiar with He-Man and She-Ra that She-Ra was He-Man's girlfriend. And so it was always like, oh, (laughs) He-Man, he's going to date She-Ra. That's going to be his like, and they're like, no, they're twins. How dare you? How Star Wars. (laughs) I know. But um, yeah, so I think that there is just like, there's like casual awareness, but it's just like, you know, kind of woven into our like cultural zeitgeist. It's like, yeah, like some, there was a really, really hardcore fandom who's just been like the archivists of He-Man. And like, I, I was very, very compelled by this little fandom that had just like been going for 35 years and was showed no signs of stopping. And they were just making sure that everything was immortalized. And that was just like really cool to me. And how did that group react to it being rebooted in such a different and refreshing way, I would say? (laughs) Queer. Yeah. (laughs) For sure, at the beginning, there was a lot of, like, distrust from the OG fandom, which I understand. Like, we all have those things in our childhood that are like, this is like, I remember exactly where I was when I saw this for the first time. I remember exactly the feeling it gave me. I remember getting this toy for Christmas. I remember playing on the playground. And, like, playing as those characters. And so, like, there was distrust. And there was, like, especially when the look of the show was revealed, people were like, this is not my Shira. This is not what's familiar to me. And I honestly, for me, it was like, I really understood that. There was, like, the one side which was just sort of, like, they weren't as invested in the original property. They were just aware of it. And they're like, Shira needs to be super curvy. She needs to be super hot. And I wasn't as, I didn't follow that side as much. I was just like, all right, you do your thing. I'll be over here. But the yeah. the original, like the fans, like the actual fans who like really were into it and who had like been like, you know, keeping this fandom alive for so many years, that was the one I was invested in. And I was like, I know not all of them are going to like it, but I suspect that like the ones who give it a shot because they're invested, like that's the thing is like the hardcore fans, they do invest time and like good faith in it a lot of the time. I, I don't know 
what percentage of them we were actually able to win over. But I know that we have won a good portion of the original fans over. Like we went to PowerCon, which is like a Masters of the Universe specific convention last year, like me and the writers. And I was a little worried. It was just like, what's it going to be like? Are people going to be like throwing stuff at us and being like, (laughs) but it was honestly, it was like so much fun. And everyone there was just so genuine and so open. And even the people who were like, well, I don't like the art style of your show, but, like, it's a good job. It's, like, you know, you really, like, brought in this piece of lore and that character that I wanted to see. And, like, the people who were open about their qualms about it but, like, still had an investment in the world. I was, like, I felt like at least we were on the same level. Like, we had a mutual respect, which was really great. People always think of the people who just, like, you know, they make the videos about, like, the ways that were the worst thing ever and all of that. Like, (laughs) I, I don't know that those people are, like, that kind of core... OG fandom that I was necessarily interested in like reaching out to him. Like if you're only watching it for Shira to be curvy and like <laughs> have a low cut dress, then like those are the people you'll never please. <laughs> like, let me introduce you to the rest of everything that's ever been made. Anyway. Right. Day. <laughs> <laughs> like, so I honestly just didn't spend too much time on that side of things. It's just like, all right, go d- you make your videos. Uh, like, I'm going to keep making the show. So Right, because what you did doesn't hurt what was done originally in any way. Like, that still exists, and that's still there, and people can revisit it anytime they want. And, like, what's the point of bringing something back if you're not going to have a fresh take on it? Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's, like... It is really difficult, I think, bringing nostalgic properties to the present because people have this idea of them that it, it nothing will ever touch what that idea is. And it's really important to us. It's just like the first time we ever see something that has a huge impact on us, there's no possible way that that will be captured again, that you'll be able to feel exactly that same thing in the same way. And so a lot of nostalgic properties, when like they only really reach out to the nostalgia aspect of it, it's just like well, we might as well have just watched the original show then because that was the experience. Yeah. And I really wanted to, like, bring something new to the table to, like, really, like, create something that, like, the six-year-old who's watching it now, they could have that experience, that feeling where, like, you know, 35 years later, they will they can have that nostalgia in their own way. Right. It's such a, like, precarious line to walk because it is, like, you know, what's your responsibility to the original show and the original canon and the original fans while also updating it for new audiences. So the new show is very obviously queer in in a lot of ways. In the old show, were there any hints of that? Like, was there subtext that you could pull when you were watching that gave any inspiration? Or were you like, this is just how I see She-Ra and I see Etheria as being this totally fluid universe? Honestly, I I think that the original show is incredibly queer. And the reason why, like, I, I think I have quite a bit of backing going into the queer themes of our show in the original show, because, like, Honestly, it's like the theme song of the original. It ends with all of the main characters standing on this cliff with a rainbow overhead, huge sparkly (laughs) rainbow. And it's all these different fabulous princesses and they're like tights and capes. And then there's Bo and he's just got this like gold nipple shield on with like a big red heart. (laughs) And otherwise his like top is totally bare, but he's just, he's happy to be there. You know, he's showing up (laughs) for his friends and it's like, and immediately I was like, oh, oh, yeah, no, this is great. This is really gay. And, yeah. like, it's, it's something that people joke about, but it honestly, like, it's it's something I think that was very intentionally 
a part of the original show. Not just He-Man, but She-Ra and, and all of it. Like, Erica Scheimer is the daughter of Lou Scheimer, who was the kind of creator of both He-Man and She-Ra, and she was very influential in the production, voiced a lot of the characters, and she's like an out lesbian as well, and has talked about Oh, I didn't know before. that. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And so it's like, you know, Spinnerl and Natasa, in the original show, they were described as like a bonded pair. Like, they were two princesses who could not be without each other. And it's like, they were already married, y'all. Like, I didn't get that part <laughs> up. Like, wow. and, uh, yeah. And, like, there were other things I think, uh, sometimes they're a little silly. Like, it's like, because of budget. Well, like, horses are really hard to animate. I just want everyone to know that. And I think because of that, like, a lot of times when the characters are riding a horse, they double up. So, like, in the first episode, <laughs> we've got He-Man who showed up. And then Bo, still with his his tummy out. And they're just like, all right, let's get on this horse. And and Bo just like wraps his arms around she, uh, around He-Man and off they go. And it's like, it's it's just such a gay show. It's like rainbows are in every part of it. It's like a 70% female cast at least. And like, it, it just makes sense. Everything about our show that is queer, it has a basis in the original. I think it was intentionally made that way you know, by this crew, like much the same way that we were pursuing these themes. So can we back up just a little bit for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with She-Ra and give kind of a quick overview of who she is and what the overall story of the, the show is? So the original 80s show focused on He-Man's twin sister, Adora. So they were sort of separated as babies and she was kind of ended up stuck in this other dimension on a planet called Etheria. And she's actually raised by the bad guys. So she's raised as a soldier for the evil horde and has no idea that she's like, you know, has this destiny to reunite with the sword of protection and become She-Ra. But she ends up finding out like the truth and defecting from the horde and becoming a leader of the Great Rebellion to fight the Horde. So it, it sort of starts with this redemption of Adora sort of realizing that she was raised to be a bad guy and choosing to be a good guy. Her story is not tied to He-Man's story in our version. They're, those two properties are kept pretty separate for us. Mm -hmm. And But it, it, it all hinges on Adora, who's been raised by this evil army. This is her whole life. It's her family. It's all she's ever known. And then she ends up realizing that, like, she finds this sword in the woods and ends up realizing that she's meant to be something else. She's meant to be the super-powered warrior goddess named She-Ra. And not just that, but she's not even the first She-Ra. This is sort of like a line of She-Ra's that she is stepping into. And then she does end up defecting from the Horde. She allies with the Rebellion. But there's a lot of hurt feelings because she ends up leaving the people that she cared about the most behind in the Horde. And there's a lot of betrayal there. And especially with Katra, who was sort of her like closest friend in the Horde. And Katra feels incredibly betrayed by her. And they end up being really the kind of central push and pull and, and conflict in relationship of the show. Now, big question. Am I supposed to find myself very attracted to Katra or is that weird of me? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I... 
this is like it's partly weird to me because I'm like that's my daughter you're talking about but like (laughs) I know you are not alone in that honestly like look I entered this show like I said I didn't grow up with a lot of like cultural influences and I didn't watch much anime besides Superbook so uh, honestly for a short time I actually thought we invented cat girls before I thought too hard about it I was like oh she's so cute she's got the cat ears she's got a little tail it's adorable I can't believe this is so cool and then eventually it like clicked for me I was like wait a second that's the thing but yeah yeah, I mean she's got the most adorable design ever I just love her ears I've definitely become more of a furry while working on this show so I (laughs) she actually reminds me a lot of an ex of mine who was later diagnosed with borderline uh, personality disorder but a lot of the traits that she has and her issues that come up throughout the show it just like reminds me so much of those kind of characteristics so it was very interesting to watch and be like yes I know this behavior I know this all too well (laughs) yeah I mean Catra's story is is pretty personal for me as well because it is like I mean what happens when when you're the bad ex you know like I I I really like I wanted to explore that story through her and are you the bad ex I've been a bad ex (laughs) (laughs) I like it's it's something that it's like I don't know that you get to see that story very often when it comes to female characters about like what happens when you just really really mess up and just like really hurt everyone in your life and push everyone away and you just like end up with nothing and no friends and what do you do next? And, like, I just yeah. I don't, I didn't feel like I'd seen that. And so I hope that, like, you know, I mean, I wanted to be sensitive about it. Like, of course, you're under no obligation to, like, forgive people who've hurt you. But I wanted to show it from her point of view a little bit. It's like, how do you go about becoming a better person? How can you fix the mistakes that you've made? So that was something I just, like, I wanted to show a little bit from her point of view, you know? Yeah, I think that the way that, like, all the or most of the characters are pretty like nuanced and complex and not just like purely evil or purely good. And exploring that makes everybody feel a lot more relatable. Yeah. The thing I feel like I like really relate to with Catra is that she just has the biggest feelings in the world and she tries to hide them, but it's just like, she cannot even begin to hide how big her feelings are. And it's, it's, she's very, very passionate. It just always, like I, that's what drives her to do the thing she does. And it's just like, that's the thing that I relate to. Cause it's like, even getting together with my wife now, the beginning of our relationship was very rocky. And I, I just went through this period where I was just like, I was in this mode of just like, I was like obsessed. And I'm just like, I have to do something to just really prove like that I'm the right person for her, like all this stuff. And like, it's just this, this weird, like period of madness. And it, and like, it worked out. And I'm, like, really happy about that. (laughs) Now I have the most amazing wife. And, like, you know, but it's also, like, there's a growth that you have to go through. There is, like, that feeling alone is not enough to, like, have those feelings. You have to figure out what to do with them. And you have to feel figure out how to channel them in a positive way. And so that was kind of the growth that I was interested in exploring. Okay, who's ready for a true story? When I entered my MFA program this fall, I knew I was going to have so little time for cooking. So I wanted a solution that would let me have tasty, healthy meals in a flash so that after class, I could still have time and energy to be gay. So I signed up for Factor, which ships you ready to eat meals that are chef created and dietitian approved. 
They're fresh, never frozen. So all you have to do is stick them in the microwave for two minutes and then they're nice and done. Um, the weekly menu has over 35 options. The salmon entrees are always my personal favorite, but they have um, a lot of things you can choose from, options for different dietary needs like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. They also have add-ons for when you don't need an entire meal. Um, I tried some good cookies and some jerky. Uh, no prep, no mess. And when I looked into it financially, which was one of my main concerns, it was actually less expensive than uh, takeout and honestly really close to the cost of buying ingredients at the grocery store down my block in New York City. Uh, and then I saved a lot of time. So to me, it was definitely worth it. Did I mention that the meals are also really delicious? Like I've yet to try one that I didn't like. So if that sounds good to you, I think you should give it a try too. Head to factormeals.com slash dykingout50 and use code dykingout50 to get 50% off. That's code dykingout50 at factormeals.com slash dykingout50 to get 50% off. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. And for the show, I believe I read that you had an all-female writer's room? Yes. So was that your decision? It was not something I had the option of being like, I want all-female writers. Mostly I just really wanted to spotlight women's voices and women's stories in a way that felt really personal. Of course, that doesn't have to come from female writers, but... Sure. Like it's it's their stories. It's something that they understand on an intrinsic level. And there was this shorthand, of course, like when we're like writing a character like Shadow Weaver, who are, I think every single member of the crew had some version of a Shadow Weaver in their life at some point. And it's just like everybody got it. Everybody understood because they'd lived it. And so that was what we prioritized. It was like being able to empathize with 
love and prioritize the female characters and the female point of view, no matter the gender of, you know, the crew member. But yeah, I mean, I think that that was like, it was great to be able to work. I've never worked in a writer's room that had more than one other female writer before. And usually I was the only one. So it was a very different experience. I think that that is starting to change slowly, but it's definitely still, it's, it's a hard place to really thrive when you are like sort of having to always back yourself up or like, you know, change the way you talk so that you can like have your voice heard. And I, right. and I just felt like with our room, like we were very loud. We just like, <laughs> everyone was like yelling at once a lot of times in a very like friendly, excited way. But like, it was something that it just felt like everyone was on the same level, respected each other, was listening to each other. It's like the experience of being in a room and there's a bunch of like women and then, and someone is like, oh, I have this idea. And then someone else starts talking at the same time. And then both people are like, no, no, you go first. No, no, you, no, you, no, you go first. I'm sorry. Like I've never seen that before because so often it's just like whoever's voice is loudest, that's who gets heard. Right. And I felt like really there was like this interest in raising up each other's voices. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we talk about a lot on this podcast about the female gaze and like writing and creating content from that perspective. And that's where having women behind the scenes really helps to do that. But an interesting thing too with your show is that gender doesn't seem to matter. Like sexuality doesn't seem to matter. It's like everybody just exists and it's not really commented on or nobody, you know, has to like Bo has two dads and nobody's like, well, that's weird. Or how does that make you feel? But it, like everything's normal and we don't see that ever. And it kind of it's like how easy would life be if like this was a reflection of everything, you know, yeah. where we didn't have to call things out or be like, this is weird. This is different. But like, oh, all of this exists. We never really define anybody's sexuality explicitly on the show. Everything is just like how two characters relate to each other. Yeah. It can be a delicate topic because like, I, I think that there is value to stories that deal with homophobia and sexism as active parts of the story. Like, and I've certainly responded to those stories, but there's also a weariness, sure. I think sometimes of like the coming out story or the story of a character rising above sexism or homophobia. I want more than just those stories. I also want stories where it is just, like gets to be a part of the normal fabric of existence and nobody, it doesn't really raise any eyebrows at all. And I, I approached it from a world building way with Shira. i again, I felt justified in this world that did not have sexism or homophobia, like as part of that fabric, because like, here's a world where all of the rulers are women. And so femininity is not something that is looked down upon here. It's actually associated with power. So like, in that world, of course, like, it just made sense to me that gender would be a little bit more fluid, that every character's relationship to gender would be a little bit more fluid and, and not quite as fraught as it is in our world, because it's just like, this is a world where like, all of this is okay. And then it's the same with the character's sexualities. There are, are like so many more female characters than male characters that it's just like, of course they're going to be romantically involved with other women. Like it just Yeah, it's like a women's college. Yeah, that's how the percentages <laughs> shake out. Like 
So, you know, I, I felt like it was justified in the way we set up the world. I, I think there are lots of different ways to tell this type of story. And I wanted to create a little bit of escapism that still felt real, you know, that still like hit those parts of us that are like, like, even though sexism isn't like an in-world problem in the story, I still think that the, that the struggles that the characters go through are kind of like parables for sexism or the way that like, you know, women are affected by like this kind of constant grinding down of like the world around them and the expectations on them. So mm-hmm. it's like, as much as I don't want to ever have like a, a character just be like, Shira, you can't beat me. You're a woman. Like uh, <laughs> it has like themes of what it's like in real life to like kind of carry the expectations of everybody on your shoulders and have to do everything to be perfect. And if you slip up even a little bit, like, you know, it's this huge burden to carry. And so it's like, the stories are still there. I wanted them to feel like things we really went through in real life, but also maybe just remove that constant static of misogyny and homophobia and just let the characters be. Totally, totally. And I think it's very successful at that. When you were starting to get into comics and graphic novels and things like that, how did that time out with you just like realizing your sexuality? Because I know that there's a lot of queerness in the comic world. And correct me if I'm wrong, but but my impression is that comics and graphic novels got like a lot more gay before mainstream animation. They did. And I think it was like I was part of a wave of younger cartoonists who sort of entered that professional space at around the same time within the same span of like five years or so or a little more. And it was it was a lot of queer people. It was almost it was almost a majority queer people, which was really cool. And it was really cool to be a part of. Because of my upbringing, I always had a really strange relationship to my sexuality. And it was something that was like kind of a big question mark for me for quite a while. Like being gay, being lesbian, anything like that, that was like a bad word where I was from or like, Mm -hmm. you know, something that was used to mock other people. So I was pretty, I had like like a buzz cut, basically. Like I was like, I I stuck out a lot in my environment. (laughs) And I was always kind of fielding like questions or speculations about like me being a lesbian. And I was always like, I I was pretty good at just shrugging that off and being like, don't be ridiculous. Like, I love boys. I'm so into boys. Yeah, concept in (laughs) theory. (laughs) And it just was like, It was weird. When I got to college, immediately I fell in with, like, the gayest group on (laughs) campus of just, like, I was one of only two people who identified as straight in that group. And I was just like, isn't it crazy how I just get along so well with gay people, even though I'm straight? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was like, it just, there were so many hoops that I had to jump through in my own mind before I was able to acknowledge that part of me in part because, like, I really was interested in boys. Or I really did think I was. It really felt, like, really profound and really, really big in my heart. Like, when I look back, it makes sense now. But, like, I sort of had this, like, huge crush on this guy. And, like, we were really close. And I was just, like, I, like could never, like, admit that I liked him. But I was, like, this is it. This is really, like, this is my big love. And then at the same time, I had this crush that I couldn't acknowledge on my roommate And it was just like these two things that were so interwoven that I could not see what it was until years later. 
And it's very, very confusing because it's just like you cannot see when you're not ready to see. Right. And so even when I was like, I'm definitely not straight, there's a lot of things that are falling into place, I had to date a guy, even once I was pretty much out to everybody and everyone's like, you're a lesbian, right? You're gay. That's what's happening. I'm like, well, you know, but then I went and dated a guy because I had to, because I felt like I had to, because the way I related to femininity, to being a woman was that I did not have value unless I was desired by men. And if I gave in to being a lesbian in my mind, that's what it was it would be me giving up because I was not desirable to men. And so I would just have to settle for just like a best friend who like, that's what I thought because that was the narrative that I was like raised in. That was like the soup that I was like swimming right. in. Like it was like, I mean, n- not, not only in, in South Carolina and, and watching those Jesus cartoons, but also just like media in general, like that's everything that we're shown. It's like, that's the possibility. And especially when you're young and a teenager and everything, like you might have feelings for women, but no, obviously I have to be with a man. And there are just so many like guardrails in your mind I like years later I like the metaphor I use is like it's not a perfect metaphor but it's like the feeling of like a hot stove which is like here is this thing that's in my head and it's blazing hot and my hand starts to get close to it and I feel the heat and I pull it away and I never get close enough to touch it because I can't because it will burn me it's too hot it's too painful I will just exist around that thing and never touch it. And then the day Mm. comes where you are forced to put your hand right on that hot stove and you realize it's not hot. It's not like painful. It's not something that burns you. It's just a part of you that you weren't able to acknowledge. And so like, I just had this blind spot in my head where I just like, I couldn't even imagine being with a woman. I didn't even know what that would be like. I had only ever like the daydreams I had about boys were so pure, honestly. I was just like, what if we slow danced while Lifehouse played? Like, you know, no concept of, like, what's a steady boyfriend going to be like? What's a husband going to be like? What is, like, being sexually interested in men going to be like? And I just was like, no idea. I'm not going to worry about that. But it, it was something that, like, as soon as you can't look away anymore – And I remember the moment where I was actually with my first boyfriend and I had a dream one night and I dreamed I was with this girl who I've never met. I don't know her. She is not like anyone I've ever met. She was like this really cute, like blonde girl who did roller derby. And I just, in my dream, that was just my girlfriend. And for the first time, I knew what it would be like to be with a woman. And, you know, hand right on the hot stove. And then there's no looking back because now you've looked at that part of you that was forbidden. Right. And uh, like, that was the start. It was so slow and so agonizing in so many ways, but like it finally was like falling into place. And then it's like, everything makes so much more sense now, now that I can actually embrace this thing that has been so central to me without me ever being able to look at it. And so, yeah, that it's honestly is like, it hasn't been that long. I think that this was like 2014. So it's only been six years that I've been able to like really engage with this part of myself. And it's really, 
That's really wild to think about it. And now you're making the queerest show probably (laughs) on TV. It's wild to me about how I get to be so open about it where it's just like everybody knows that I'm married to a woman. Everyone knows that this show is gay. It's like this part of me that I just like couldn't even acknowledge. And now it's like such a front facing part of who I am. And it's Life is life is strange. The journey, the journey to coming out is unique to everybody, but it is a confusing one for sure. Right, right. I'm sure a lot of our listeners right now are relating very hard to what you just said. So eloquently put. Was there like any pushback with like how queer and fluid the show was? Like from both inside you know, industry people and then outside, like, did you get hate mail from the million moms or whatever those sad ladies are called? <laughs> I think one million moms, like, they, 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 like, looked at us and they're like, I'm not even gonna go there. Cause, like, <laughs> I mean, it's very obvious what we're about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have not personally seen it. Not that I seek it out, but I think it has been a very interesting journey because when we started this journey, this was, almost, you know, five years ago now. And I remember I put Spinnerella and Natasa being married into the pitch. And that was kind of my like Trojan horse of like, is this going (laughs) to be something that I can be open about? And, and it was just sort of like the consensus was like, well, we can't say it. Like, we can't say it. Like, just like, just they can, you know, kind of, but like there, there was a lot of pushback at that time. And there was not a lot of shows that had really, broken that barrier. I think Steven Universe was really blazing the trail for the rest of us. But like, I I think even at the time, that wasn't even something that like executives were like taking into account weirdly, or like it hadn't achieved its legendary status yet. And so it was like, well, that's just one show. Like, like that's just an outlier. We can't, we have to, we have to stay in, you know, this kind of main mainstream lane. My strategy was honestly like throw so much in that they won't be able to take all of it out. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was this constant, like, just back and forth with, like, honestly, very kind and very empathetic execs who were just trying to, like, protect the company, protect the show, but were nervous. And it was, like, it was risky. And so it was just, like, a back and forth for, like, a while about what we could do and what we could get away with and what we couldn't. And, like, there were times when it was, like, go for it. And then I go for it, and I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That that was a lot. <laughs> that was like the princess prom story." Yes. So like, it has been. It was like something that was just like it was. Everyone was agonizing over it. Like it was like we were trying our best to incorporate it in every way possible, but it was something that I understood that I had to be quiet about. That it was not something I could like be outright and just talk about it the way we're talking about it now. And it wasn't until the first season came out. And like, we had been working on the show for three years before the first season came out. And the first season came out and people immediately picked up on it. And everybody knew. I mean, it's not subtle. It's like, again, Princess Prom, it's right there. But like, (laughs) it was something that had been like, okay, just play it down, play it down, play it down, throw in a mention of friends there. Like... And then everybody, like, we got this wave of enthusiasm and support for people who felt represented for the first time ever in something that they loved. I was freaking out at that episode. And, like, the the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, man, had this been around when I was younger, I would have been like, 
so obsessed the way that you obsess over things when you're a teenager, you know, and and just like thinking about young queer people watching it today, like how that must be like a huge exhale to to see that. <laughs> For sure. And like and feel like seen and heard and be like, oh, my gosh, like, thank you. <laughs> w- without again, without it being like a spectacle, you know. That's the thing. It's like that hot stove. It's like, what would it have been like if I had seen characters that I loved and related to and it just was an option for them to be with women, for them to be gay? Like, it's something I I honestly like when I look back and the cartoons that I did watch, like I loved Scooby-Doo as a kid and and Velma from Scooby-Doo was my first crush. And for some reason, I felt more comfortable with that thought than I would have if she was like an actress in a live action show because that would be a real woman that would be like oh do I want to date a real woman but film is a cartoon you can't date a cartoon she's just a drawing and so it was something where I actually felt more comfortable kind of exploring my interest in Velma and Shigo and like all of the Captain Amelia from Treasure Planet all of these characters that I was like why am I just like rewinding the scene over and over again and and like it's just something like so many kids like we we explore ourselves and our sense of identity it's not not even really it's not like oh I'm attracted to this or oh this is like you know making me feel weird it's like it is just like we're looking for ourselves we're looking for people who who are like us or feel like they embody some part of us and for me cartoons were the were the safest place to do that and to be able to bring that to like kids today to like young audiences to be like hey do you want to wear a suit to prom do you want to ask your friend who's a girl maybe just as friends but maybe not as friends like that's okay you can do that you can do any of these things it's okay it's 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 normal and like just having that be something that is like maybe it doesn't have to be this like hot stove part of your soul maybe it could just be a regular option that you could do. It's a huge responsibility for me. It's something I take very seriously because I do think that like it matters and it makes a difference for kids who would otherwise feel agonized over it forever the way I did, the way so many people did. Like what if you could just feel comfortable with that part of yourself and feel welcome and feel accepted without having to like hide, without having to be ashamed and That's a lot of like, you know, what I consider my responsibility as someone who makes media for all ages audiences. Yeah. And it's it's crazy because there really isn't, you know, people talk about Steven Universe and and She-Ra. But but other than that, I can't really think of much out there that kind of does that. And I wonder if it is like this fear of backlash because, you know, gay people are always accused of like trying to recruit and convert children. (laughs) Like honestly, as I look at it, I'm like all of those characters I was talking about. Like, like Shigo was there because straight men liked like this sexy like villain, and then all the kids out there who were like gay and didn't know it yet were like, ah, yes, this is like this is great. So it's like. That's, that stuff is already out there in the media and it's not necessarily right. being put out by gay people or with gay themes, but it's like kids see 
themselves and like they see like and they project onto things that might not even be with them as the intended audience like I don't think that that's like that Chico was necessarily but she's like so widely beloved by lesbians now of just like oh yeah of course like it's something that is like already those themes were in animation and we projected onto them and we saw ourselves even when we weren't represented and like it's the same it's like straight kids aren't gonna see a gay character and then be like oh I guess I'm gay now oops, like, would have been straight, now I'm gay. It's like, no, those kids were like, that was always a part of them, and they saw something that reflected them, and it made a difference. And straight kids, I hope they do watch it, and they're like, ah, my friend who's gay is super normal, and I love my friend, and, like, that's just a normal way that people are, and, like, it's super cool. Like, that's the idea. It's just, like, this is us. This is, like, you know, it's not just normalizing, but it's, like, trying to create a better world that we believe in and like for those kids who like otherwise would feel invisible would otherwise feel like they had to hide you know hopefully that's changing that's amazing it's so cool that's a huge reason of why like the show so much and why I hope all of our listeners will go to Netflix and give it a shot I want to talk a little bit more about some of the the specific characters like Scorpia so representation of different body types too is a big thing with your series like especially compared to the old Chira where all the women were basically like curvy hourglass figures and even Shadow Weaver had like a huge rack. <laughs> it's amazing. When I saw the pictures of old Shadow Weaver, I'm like, why are Shadow Weaver's boobs so big? Like there's no reason for Shadow Going Weaver some stuff. She's just that like that lady who's like I'd rather you drink in the house if you're going to do it. Like right, like <laughs> It's like Shadow Weaver, please. (laughs) But then you have like Scorpia, who like when I first saw her, I'm like, oh, she's like a fun brand of Tarth. Like (laughs) just like this tall butch, but also reminds me a lot of Pink. Interesting. Yeah, I could see it. And like after a while, I'm like, I'm just pretending this is Pink now. Like (laughs) because now that Pink's blonde, like and then Pink has like big dyke energy, even though she's not. Yeah, it's just like so cool to have this character who's just like big and powerful and butch, but just like so so soft at the same time. Yes, yes. So sweet, so so caring. Can I, I have like a story about Scorpia and like, it's actually, I I should have maybe incorporated this into my like story earlier where it was like me coming to terms with my sexuality. So actually like Lauren Ash, who voices Scorpia, I had been a huge fan of Super Fun Night, which was this sitcom that she'd been in. It was only one season. It was like a Rebel Wilson, like kind of musical sitcom and her character has a coming out plot in that show. And it's really, really well done. Or, I mean, at least it hit perfectly right with me at the time. And it's like, she doesn't, it's like the thing where like everyone is just like always with her. They're like, oh, but you're gay, aren't you? And she's like, no, not me. What are you talking about? And then just at one point, (laughs) she like makes friends with this other woman and the woman's being really friendly and really like, she's like, oh, this is great. I love hanging out with with this woman. And then at some point realizes that this woman is pursuing her. And you see that moment. She doesn't say anything. She's just, you just zoom in on her face and you can see it happening. And I'm watching this and I'm still with my boyfriend and I'm like, oh, 
damn it. Like, <laughs> that's me. That's me. Like, I, I know exactly what's going through her head right now. So fast forward years later, and I every time we are trying to choose an actor for the characters, I kind of go into our casting director's office, and we just listen to their taped auditions. And... We had Lauren's audition, and I like I saw on the casting sheet immediately her face, and I knew it was her. And she did that like first scene with Scorpio where she's on the boat with Catra, and then she just keeps going because Lauren is an amazing, like amazing at improvisation at ad libbing. She always ad libs, and we always incorporate it into the episodes. And so like she had the sides which are pretty basic, and then she just kept going and like ad libbing the scene where she's like holding Catra, and she's like gaze into my eyes, gaze into my eyes. You're a beautiful woman. I'm I'm in love with you. Like all of this stuff. And I just, I'm in the room and I just go flame red, just red. And I'm like, oh, she doesn't even know that I've had this like performative experience around her character on this other show. Yeah. And now she's like adding all this, like, I mean, there was nothing in the script that was like overt, but I, I think it was pretty obvious what we were going for with the character. And she just ran with that. Right. And it was like, I mean, there was no question in my mind that this was Scorpia, that this was who she was. And it's that incredibly powerful lesbian energy. And it was also something that was just like, you know, at first you think she's going to be this big, scary person. And then you think she's just going to be this joke character. But she is one of the most empathetic sweetest, most loving characters on the show. And having that be this, like, big, muscular, like, short hair, like, woman. But she's a princess. And she's, like, you know, she's all about love and giving love and being good to her friends. And, like, it's it's something I – the character is so, so close to my heart for so many reasons. But that kind of initial moment of magic where it was just, like – you know, the moment it was clear that Lauren was the voice of Scorpia and that, you know, it was this logical conclusion of another experience I'd had with a character that Lauren played. And I, I also have to ask about what it was like with working with both Gina Davis and Sandra Oh. Those are two <laughs> incredible actresses who have also had roles that I think have a lot of queer subtext. <laughs> I am so dazzled by both of them. They are some of the most like, like truly you, they enter the room and it is like, you're just like, wow, you know, like all eyes are on them. Like everything is like the energy that they like give off is just so compelling. So like Sandra is like, I'm a huge fan of Killing Eve. It's uh, like one of my favorite shows. Yeah. Uh, And and Sandra is just like, she is so, she just comes in and just, she like gets a seat and she comes and sits next to us and she just starts breaking the script down and like doing this like incredible critical analysis, all very complimentary, but like being like, here, here's these themes that I see and like all these ways and just like, like she had like thought about this and it was like some of like the smartest like breakdown of the themes in Shira that I've ever heard. I honestly, this is a true story. Like she expanded my vocabulary to the point where I like use a lot of the words that she first threw out while analyzing the script. I now use them in a lot of interviews because (laughs) they sound really smart and they're really fitting. (laughs) Like I didn't know the word self-individuation before Sandra Oh, and now I do. And I, I use it all the time. So like, I mean, it's just like you, she's everything you hope she'll be. Like, she's just like this incredible person with this incredible energy and just like, so incredibly intelligent. And then Gina Davis is, I mean, like, she is so gorgeous. She's so tall. 
I am such a huge fan of, like, Thelma and Louise is, like, a huge, huge movie for me and very formative. And, yeah. like, of course, like, every movie, honestly, that she's been in. A League of Their Own for me. I was, like, just so obsessed with that. And and, as soon, and her voice is so distinct that, like, as soon as Huntera, right, was the yeah. character, as soon as she came on screen, I immediately knew I'm like oh my god Gina Davis what a treat (laughs) I know it was like I think she was at DreamWorks and she was doing a talk because she runs the Gina Davis Institute for uh, gender parity and so she's doing a talk at DreamWorks and then sort of like I think she does this everywhere she goes just being like and if you ever need like a actor and some of your stuff you know where to find me and then our executives were like Absolutely. Are we? Are, are you serious? Yes. And so that was kind of how it came to be. And like, yeah, I mean, I remember that first record we had with her. She like taught us all archery stances. And I was like, I can't believe oh that Gina Davis is teaching God. me how to hold a bow and arrow. Like it was so- That is like the bucket list experience. Exactly <laughs> oh the experience you hope for from Gina Davis. Holy shit. And I remember the first time she saw Huntara's design and she's just like, oh, her yeah it's amazing she like the rest of the day and like uh she just kept referring to her she's like oh this is on tired she's purple and enormous (laughs) (laughs) honestly being able to work with both of them yeah like you said bucket list it is right what a dream seriously so now that she is wrapped up, I read that you have a memoir coming out, kind of like a graphic memoir. Yeah, so I just released a memoir called The Fire Never Goes Out, which is based on almost 10 years of different personal comics and like doodles and just different things that I've made over the years to sort of like kind of chart my path and, you know, what had happened in my career. I started making these comics back in like, I think 2000. 11. And it was something like I I mentioned before getting into comics in college. It was something that like I had felt before that like I was always trying to say something and it never came out the way I wanted it to. And people didn't seem to understand what I was saying. And it made me really frustrated. And it was like it was a very, very dark time in my life as well. I just was like dealing with an undiagnosed mental illness, just really, really acting out and lashing out at friends and like going through a lot of other big life changes. Like I had just left the church at around that time. I was like, kind of like, this was around the time where I mentioned I was like, sort of balancing this, like what I assumed was a crush on this guy. And then also like these feelings for this female friend of mine. So it was like, it was a mess. It was a, it was a mess. (laughs) It was not pretty. Um, But I just got, I ended up discovering comics at that time and the ability to like, in very simple words and very simple pictures express how I was feeling. And that's what Nimona is about, really. And and it, for the first time, it seemed like people were understanding me and they were hearing me and understanding why I was feeling the way I was, which had always been so difficult for me to express before. And it was like a light came on in the darkness. It was like suddenly I had the tools to deal with and manage my feelings without having to like, you know, let them out in a huge destructive burst. And so I started just like, these comics became a really regular practice for me of just like, I didn't always share them even. Sometimes they were just for me. And I just like, you know, I poured my heart and soul into these comics and I accumulated them for years. And it's all about just like the feelings of just like, you know, 
the pressure of my job and my feelings towards myself, my feelings towards like whatever seemed to be wrong in my brain. Like I never intended them to be collected. And I certainly, I had never expected to be one of those people who released a memoir at 27. Show off. I know. <laughs> my editor at HarperCollins reached out and was like, you know, this is like, we, we want to collect these. We want to like, you know, make this an illustrated memoir, which yeah. I'm just really, you know, honored that they yeah. like had that faith in me and in my story. But yeah, that's what the book is about. It's just about like kind of 10 years worth of feelings and everything from like first starting to break into the comics industry to like meeting my wife and a little bit of the like turmoil that we went through there all the way up until like, you know, getting married last year. Like it's, it's a very, very personal story. And it's these kind of like message in a bottle comics that I made. Not sure if anyone would really see them or understand. And then, you know, actually getting that understanding that I had been like craving for so long. And uh, it really changed everything. I love that. I, I will admit I've always been very intimidated by comics in general. Um, <laughs> I, I think I grew up with like immigrant parents. I just have a lot of like cultural blind spots and felt like the world of comics was just like really yeah. robust. And like, I don't know, I uh, would get overwhelmed. But I did get introduced to comics in school when I was in a lot of like creative nonfiction kind of writing workshops and started reading like Persepolis and a lot of like Linda Berry. And that what you just described really reminds me. Have you read Marbles? I think it is by Ellen Forney. It's I like a no. What you just described really reminds me of it. It's called Marbles, Mania, Depression, Michelangelo and Me. And oh, it's wow, like okay. I really love those. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of autobiographical comics. Yeah. It's like what introduced me to it. And I'm very excited to read yours. Yeah, for sure. I hope you I hope you enjoy it. It is like yeah. comics are able, I think, to be like I, I just think that they manage to paint a picture of a time and place in really sometimes in really, really simple lines without a lot of detail. For me, they just capture the feeling of just being there and the way it felt to be there. And so like I, I really love, you know, graphic novel memoirs, especially queer narratives, because there's just something about it where it's just like you're like, I get this. I feel like I'm there with you. Um, yeah. And I hope that's the experience with The Fire Never Goes Out, too. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. So outside of the, the memoir, is there any other upcoming projects that you have going on? Yes, I have a couple of projects coming up that I'm very excited about. Unfortunately, I cannot get into specifics just yet. <laughs> I think very soon I will be able to. So stay tuned. Listeners, you know, if you're not watching already, you've got to check out She-Ra. It's just an incredible show, and I've really enjoyed watching it, and I can't wait to see the final three episodes. And Noelle, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they do that? I am on Twitter and Instagram, both at Ginger Hazing. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> I love it. As a fellow Ginger... I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like all cons are canceled for for a while. But normally, are you like on the circuit like in two years if people are going to like Flame Con or Comic Con? Are you usually at those places? Yeah, I'm around. I think I'm. Uh, yeah, I love to um, go to conventions. So I'm sure I will be. I don't know when that will start happening again. But at some <sighs> point when we can interact in public spaces again, I'm sure I will be accessible. All right. Well, everybody, yeah, check out. Shira and follow Noel at Ginger Hazing. Ginger Hazing. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for taking out with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. 
Wow, that was a great interview and did not make me feel terrible about myself and what I had accomplished by her age at all. I feel really great about where I am in my life and that I was just busy in a failing marriage uh, when I was her age. Yeah, feeling energized. Showrunner of a Netflix series. (laughs) It has five seasons. Oh my god! Uh, so ridiculously impressive. I'm I'm gonna have to journal about this. Yeah, so <laughs> prolific. I'm enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> I know. I'm gonna have to like look in the mirror and say nice affirmations about myself after Noel. No, seriously, good for her. She is awesome, and I can't wait. She's got such a amazing career ahead of her and behind her and she deserves it. She's going to do great things. Keep an eye out for her memoir. Watch Shira if you haven't already. And let's get to our listener question. Okay. I'm 19 and I've been out as bi for almost a year now. I've been hooking up with this girl from my high school for about six months. We almost dated, but some things came up and we decided to just keep it casual for now. The problem is every time we have sex, I feel like I regret it in the morning. And every time we don't have sex, I also regret it because I feel like I should have made a move. In the past, it's been her initiating things. The one time I did initiate, she said, that took you a while. It's weird because we often sext and send pics to each other. But for some reason, in person, we just end up watching Netflix and falling asleep. How do I start making the first move? And is it worth it? Is this lesbian bed death? I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> oh, honey. Oh, I. <laughs> this is my first time reading this question. So <laughs> I just started to break it. Is this lesbian bed death, honey? No, it is not. It is not lesbian bed death. It's a case oh of God. you're not that into her. You seem like you feel like compelled to be having sex with her, but none of it. Like there was nothing in this question that was like, I really want to have sex. It's about how you feel like you should or that it's like your turn or you feel guilt. But the huge red flag is that every time you have sex, you regret it in the morning. Yeah. No, stop having sex with her. That is a million percent not the feeling you should have. Like never. Never. If you're if you're regretting sex, that is sex you are not supposed to be having. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a scarcity mentality because she'd mentioned she's from my high school. Maybe she's like one of the few queer people around. That's what I was wondering, too. You're probably just feeling like she's your only option to be. Queer. I know, we, we get it. Lesbians make up a very small percentage of the population are queer girls. And to misquote past guest <laughs> Rachel McCartney's joke, it's usually balancing trying to figure out whether or not it's like, oh my God, I found the one or, oh my God, I found one, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's the case here. I don't know if you're having regret, stop doing it. Yeah. I don't know if this was sent before quarantine. So hopefully this has resolved itself, but I think it's good advice for anybody that if you're having sex, you regret, that's not the sex you should ever be having, you know, unless the regret is coming from like some type of maybe internalized homophobia, then I could see maybe having feelings of regret. So dig around into that. Or like regret and how it happened. Like, do you regret when you have sex the next morning? Like, I wish I had made the first move, (laughs) you know, like, do you regret 
Like, do you feel like you're supposed to be doing it a certain way? Yeah. Are you just too bottoms are you two tops what's happening right her response to the one time you initiated it shows that there's some incompatibility that you know she probably feels like maybe you're not into her if you're never making a move but especially like six months into a relationship that doesn't sound like lesbian bed death that sounds just like you're not into it <laughs> and that's, be like, that's lesbian that's okay. bunk bed death that's ageist I'm sorry (laughs) you know who here that went to college as a queer person did not have bunk bed sex okay I didn't have sex in college I was such a late bloomer and I can't wait to get into that with our guest next week oh yes (laughs) next week you guys what what a tease but we have a guest that we're very excited about and I guess they'll just have to to wait and tune in not that we were also very excited about this guest actually we're having just the most amazing guests in a row (laughs) it's an embarrassment of riches in the dyke world really just living our our best dyke lives in quarantine well if you have any questions for us you can write in dyking out at gmail.com or if you have a question that you need answered right away, you can go to wizio.com slash checking out. That's W-I-S-I-O.com. And there you can pay a little bit of money and we will make a five-ish minute video for you with personalized advice. And that's a way to help you guys out quicker if you think what we have to say has any value. And I think it does. <laughs> Might be biased. Follow us on social media. As we mentioned before, we're cranking out memes and episode art. And now that we're Zooming and trying out Zooming, we might be putting clips of stuff on on Instagram. Who knows? We're good to follow. Yeah. And we've got nothing but time. Yeah. Go follow Dyking Out right now. If we get to, I think, 10,000 followers, which we're inching up to, then we get the coveted swipe up for the link (gasps) function on stories. Help us out. Dykes need to be swiping. You know, that that up and down motion with your finger. That's... You gotta be in practice yeah. in quarantine. If yes. you're alone, especially, just, you know. <laughs> help us help you by giving us the swipe feature. <laughs> and then you can also follow us on, on Twitter. You know, try to be funny there, too. You can follow me at TGI Carolyn and at Every Gay Susan, if you so desire. You can follow me at Melody Kamali. I have gotten an influx of followers on Twitter, which makes me think maybe I should tweet for the first time yeah, like this get on year. Yeah, uh, Yeah, I really have no excuse at this point. Otherwise, I'm more active on Instagram, also at Melody Kamali. Awesome. And be sure to dike out with us again next week. Bye. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, 
and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.